Turn with me to the book of Philippians, starting into chapter 3 today. We've been working our way through this, late, this letter that the early, early church leader Paul wrote to his friends in the city of Philippi. And what we're going to see today is that what we've been talking about, if you could summarize the first couple of chapters of the letter, what we've really been talking about the past few weeks is the fight for unity in the church. That Paul, in several different ways, has been telling his friends to fight for their unity in Christ. And today, the fight for unity turns into, transitions to, the fight for joy. So just by way of summary, um, Paul, for instance, says in chapter 1, live your citizenship in the gospel by standing firm in one spirit, by fighting side by side. Right? He says, I hear that you're fighting face to face, that there are dissensions, that there are quarrels, that there's rivalry going on in the church. And I'm telling you that because of the gospel, you can't do that. That instead of fighting face to face, you need to fight side by side, not against one another, but for the gospel. Paul says the way that you do that is you consider one another more important than yourself. You do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But I consider... Matthew more important than myself. I consider Jason and Mike and Jay and Miss Betty more important than myself. Which is, that goes against the grain of our natures, doesn't it? I mean, our, our default setting is, is to stand up for ourselves, is to defend our own interests. I mean, if we don't, who will? That's what my heart says. If I don't clamor for my entitlements, who will clamor for them? How am I going to get what I want? How am I going to get what I need if I don't stand up for myself? And Paul, in response to that, says, Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ. And he goes on in Chapter 2, to look to talk about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. That the, the one person who could claim their entitlements, the one person who does have the right to ask for glory, gives it up. Right? The king of heaven makes himself a slave on earth and then dies a shameful death for his people. And because he does that, God gives him the glory he so richly deserves. And Jesus brings us into that glory. And so what that means is the way that I apply the good news, the way I live in that good news, is that when, when my heart white-knuckle grips onto the thing it wants and says, this is mine, Jesus says, it's okay. I've got more. I've got better. You can let go. You don't have to clamor. You don't have to fight. 
I've won everything that you need. And so we fight for humble unity against selfish pride because of the gospel. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And it's an allegory of what heaven and hell might look like. And it's really interesting. His, his vision, his view of hell, is of this sprawling city, ever-increasing, new neighborhoods, building every day. But here's the trick. The reason it keeps growing is because the people who are there don't want to be near other people. And so when someone else moves in, the people just keep moving out. They want to keep to themselves. And so this is a, this is a, a sprawling city in perpetual twilight, always darkness and always selfishness. The people in, the people in hell don't want to be near one another. And C.S. Lewis's version of hell anyway. Paul calls us to a different vision, right? God's people are called to community, to fellowship, not, not one-upmanship. God's people are called to community, not isolation. Paul says don't fight against each other. Fight with each other for unity. That's the first part of the letter. And then there's a related fight. There's something that flows out of that. Really, actually, it fuels the fight for unity. And it's the fight for joy. Fighting for joy in Christ helps us fight for unity with each other. And that's what we're going to see today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. We're going to spend all of our time looking at verses 1 through 3. But it all hangs together as a piece. And so I'm going to read 1 through 11. Let's give attention to God's word. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also... If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. God most high, God most glorious, would you open your word to us now? Would you speak to us through your word? Would you bless the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of your word that we would be transformed? That we would be able to grasp what's going on in this letter so that we would be able to understand what it says to us and how we live with you and how we live with each other. Lord, help us to live in the light of the good news of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Here's what I'm going to say that this passage is about, particularly these first three verses. True joy comes when we reject self-righteousness and glory in Christ alone. So in order to experience true joy, we'll talk about that, in order to to get there, we have to reject self-righteousness, which is one of the places we try to find joy, and we have to glory in Christ alone. That's That's the dichotomy, that's the separation that Paul sets up. And I don't think there's a better picture of it than Gollum. Now, if you haven't ever read The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, right now a couple of the less nerdy people in the room are like shaking their heads. No, I've never done that. Why would I do that to myself? Right? You don't know Gollum. But Gollum is a character in the stories of J.R.R. Tolkien, and he is a wretched and pitiable creature. Now, to understand Gollum, uh, you need to understand that those stories all revolve around a ring, the ring of power. And it's a ring that has been crafted by a great evil darkness. And it promises ultimate power to whoever holds it, to whoever wears it. But that promise, because it comes from evil, is actually a lie. Because the, the people who bear the ring actually become subject to the ring's power. They become dominated by it. And they become turned inward. That happened to Gollum. And by the time we meet him, it's hundreds of years later. We don't really know much about his backstory. But when we meet him, when we first see him, he is this disgusting, pale, slimy, violent, self-absorbed creature living in a dark cave. And he's hoarding the one possession that he loves. He calls it his precious. And it is this ring. And when that ring leaves him, because the ring has a will of its own, when that ring leaves him, The rest of his life is bent on pursuing it and finding it and doing harm to whoever has it so that he can get it back. And so he is is not only a violent creature, but he's also a manipulator. He is is an expression of what James calls a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Because he hates himself and loves himself. He hates the ring and loves the ring. 
You could even say he suffers from split personality disorder. Gollum is so mastered by this promise of false joy that he, it actually takes him to his death. His love for the ring ends up killing him. And in that way, Gollum is a brilliant example of misplaced joy. Gollum has put everything he has, every breath, every minute, every thought, every uttered word, every appetite into acquiring and holding on to this ring because he thinks in having it he will have happiness. And in that way, Gollum is much like you and me. Maybe we're not as bad off yet. Maybe we don't look like Gollum on the outside. But if we are tamed, if we are dominated by any other joy than Jesus himself, then we become wrecked and pitiable creatures. The Bible affirms these two statements. One, we are created for joy. We are created to know happiness. We are created to be glad. And we are hopelessly inept at finding joy. We are hopelessly incompetent when it comes to actually finding and enjoying the source of true delight. And so ours is a pretty pretty messed up condition. We're wired for joy, and yet we stink at finding it. That's our condition. And so Paul comes along, and he says this. He offers a truer, better alternative. He tells, he tells us what we really need, and he says this. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, finally, brothers, that word finally... Paul's now moving on to kind of the rest of his letter. And he summarizes it all in saying this. He says, rejoice, be glad, be happy in the Lord. Some would make a a division between happiness and joy. That, That division isn't really there necessarily in the Greek, though it could be there in the English. But what Paul is saying is, The only place you're going to find a deep well of happiness that you're looking for is in Christ alone. Be glad in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. If you need any proof of those two statements, that we are wired for joy and we are terribly incompetent at finding joy, just look at our own human experience, right? Your brain is wired... To be happy, to respond in happiness, right? When you do certain things, it releases chemicals that make you feel good, the absence of which make you feel bad. This is why people, some people who exercise and run, experience what's called a high, right? They call it the runner's high. It's a release of endorphins. I've had people who say that's never happened to them. I get it. I understand. 
right? But all of us have those things, right? There are, there are behaviors that bring us joy, but we've pushed those to the limit. Meth, heroin, pornography, right? If you look at the human brain and how it physiologically responds to those things, you see a spike in endorphin release, which is that good feeling, and then you see a crash, which then prompts you to spike again, except that because you crashed, you can't spike as high, and so you crash even further. And this is the downward spiral of addiction, and it's actually proof that we're wired for joy and that we can't get at it. And you don't even have to experience one of those extreme addictions to know what I'm talking about. That every, every source of true delight you work for, you think you can get, ends up being disappointing. And so Paul says, rejoice in Jesus. Be glad in Jesus. Don't be glad in anything but Him. Find your true joy there. We're going to talk more about this when we get to Philippians 4 because Paul picks this up again. But I want you to think for a second what, what a practical world, what a, what a massive world of practical living comes in just that little phrase, rejoice in the Lord. I would argue that's actually the summary of the Christian life. That to be a Christian means to rejoice in the Lord. Now you could argue, well, Kevin, Jesus, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what Jesus says the summary of the good life is. And I'm going to argue that Paul and Jesus are really saying the same thing. Right? You can't love the Lord, your God, without rejoicing in Him. I mean, don't we rejoice in the things that we love? If you said, Kevin, do you, in, do you enjoy, a, is there a particular football team that you cheer for? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a huge, huge Alabama fan. Okay, well, what did you think about that national championship game? I didn't watch it. What? Why not? Eh, I wasn't that interested. You would have reason to doubt that I was actually in love with Alabama football because I had no desire to rejoice in it. We rejoice in the things that we love. And so when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, I'm going to argue that he's actually pulling together all of the different parts of the Christian life under that heading. To be with Jesus, to be in Jesus, is to seek to rejoice in Him, is to fight for joy in Him. To be saved by grace is to be freed from finding our joy in lesser things. To live apart from God simply means that to find your joy in something lesser. To find your joy in something that cannot satisfy. And to be saved by God's grace means that that chain is cut. That you are rescued 
from your desire to find joy in everything else and find your ultimate joy in Jesus. That's what we read in Jeremiah 9. Excuse me. That's what, we, that's what you find in Jeremiah 2. When God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have dug for themselves cisterns that hold no water. To be saved by grace means to be pulled out of the cistern and brought over to the fountain and said, Here is life. Drink here. Find joy here. And oddly enough, our hearts keep being drawn back to the cistern, to the broken cistern. And so we have to fight for joy. We, we have to hear Paul say, rejoice in the Lord, because my tendency is to find joy somewhere else. We have to say to one another, rejoice in the Lord. How do we do that? Just a few practical suggestions. Here in a few weeks, uh, we will probably be doing for Adult Sunday School a, a study called The Habits of Grace. We're going to look at different ways. In fact, our youth core group uh, guys and girls are already studying this. But what this study is going to show us is that there are different ways that God has ordained to pour grace into our lives, both individually and corporately, together. And we need to look at how we put ourselves in those paths so that we are recipients of the grace that God gives so that we can rejoice in the Lord. If I am not in his grace, it is hard for me to enjoy his grace. And so we put ourselves into the paths. Um, the word, prayer, corporate worship. These are places where God is enjoyed or ought to be enjoyed. And so we do this to rejoice in Jesus. But what shape uh, does this fight for joy take here in this passage? Paul says rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. So this is ground he's covered with them before. He's repeating it again. He finds it to be important. It's not any trouble for me, and it's safe for you. And then he starts cursing people, which sounds really counterintuitive to rejoicing in the Lord. Like, surely somebody who's happy shouldn't be talking like this. But that's how serious joy is. Paul knows the kind of things that rob our joy, that steal our joy. And so he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Sorry, I just realized I totally didn't have the outline up there for you guys. Darcy just rolled her eyes. She's like, oh, I was wrong. Sorry about that. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for, literally, the mutilators. What does this have to do with rejoicing in Jesus? What does this have to do with fighting for joy? And the reason is, the connection is, that Paul wants us to fight self-righteousness. That the people who are troubling the church in Philippi are robbing them of their joy. And Paul wants them to know that. And maybe... Just as an aside, you think, man, why would, is that, I, I thought Paul said we weren't supposed to talk to each other like this. Like, why is, he, why is he calling these people names? Does not good fatherly love require stern warnings often? 
Paul is warning them to look out for these people who will rob them of their joy. Look at how he describes them. Actually, before we go into that, we need to, there's a couple of things we need to know to understand what Paul is saying. And the first thing you need to understand is the difference between Jews and Gentiles. All right? The Jews, the Old Testament, people of God, the Old Testament written to them and by them, they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has a special relationship with them by grace. He gives them the law. And in, not in following the law, they have their salvation, but they worship by the law, right? Now, so that's the Jews. And it's worth pointing out that all of the first believers in Jesus were Jewish. Jewish, uh, Jesus was Jewish. All of the first apostles were Jewish. And so... Christianity is really the fuller expression of Judaism. Because as the Jews were were unable to keep God's law, as they continually showed themselves unfaithful, God began to send prophets to them and tell them about a Messiah, a man, a royal king who is going to come and rescue them from their sin and help them be faithful. And when Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament, he claims to be that Messiah. So that's the progression of the biblical story, okay? So what's a Gentile? A Gentile is everybody else. Everybody outside of the Jewish religion, everybody who is not ethnically of the family of Jacob is a Gentile. So not only now, not only was it startling that Jesus promised to be the Messiah, But it was also startling that he said this hope of God that the Jews had was for the world. That this message that the Jews had believed, this special relationship that the Jews had had with God for thousands of years was meant to be shared among the nations. It was meant to break out of the Jews and go to the Gentiles. And that's precisely where the conflict came. Because the Jews thought that they, because of their special relationship with God, were all that there was. You see, God had given them this symbol, this sign called circumcision. And it marked them, at least the males, it marked them as God's chosen people. But they had taken that symbol of God's grace, that sign of God's favor to them... And they had made it their own sign of pride. They had begun to stand on circumcision. And what they called Gentiles was dogs. The uncircumcised. You you Gentiles are outside, not inside, like we are. You don't have circumcision. We have circumcision. That That was the divide between Jew and Gentile. And it even found its way into the early church. Because there were people, and this is who Paul is dealing with. So I say all of that to explain this special group of people in the early church. We'll call them Judaizers. They professed to be Christians. But what they actually practiced was something other than Christianity. 
They said, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. Yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to follow the laws of Moses. And so they were adding to a salvation by grace with works. It was a mixture. And so Paul is warning against these people. Their message was this. Trusting in Jesus isn't enough. Faith in Jesus isn't enough. You need to be circumcised if you truly want to be a part of God's people. If you truly want to be saved, you need to add to Jesus. It's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus ritual obedience. Paul hates this. And we should hate it too. Paul devoted a whole letter to it, the letter to the Galatians. He also rails against it in 2 Corinthians. Here's what Paul calls these people. He says, watch out for the dogs. Now that was actually an insulting, it is an insulting term still. That was an insulting word that the Jews would use for Gentiles. They were the filthy dogs. They were the, they were the mutts living outside the city. They were the stray dogs who roamed around scavenging in garbage. They were the dogs, the Gentiles were. Paul says, no, no, no. You're the dogs. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. They think they're the true people, but they're not. They're the ones who are outside. They're the ones who have rejected the truth. Paul says, watch out for the evildoers. Not meaning people who do bad things or sinners in general. No, what the Judaizers were saying was, we are the people who do good. We are the people who do the works of the law. Paul says, no, you're not. He says, watch out for the, e- the evil workers, the workers of evil. They think they're doing good, but they don't. They are not the, work- they are not the-, the do-gooders. They are the evildoers. And then he says, watch out for the mutilation. Now, to us, this seems kind of like an odd thing to say, but it's helpful if you realize that the words mutilation and circumcision are very close to each other in the Greek. Katatame, paratame. One means to cut down. The other means to cut around. And so what Paul is saying is these people think they're the circumcision. That's what they think they're standing on, but they're not. No, they're actually the mutilation. See, Paul is, Paul is criticizing them, and he's using words that would, have, that would have been very pointed and very accurate. He says they claim to be the circumcision, but they're not. They're really just mutilators of the flesh because they misunderstand what circumcision is. All right, if all of that lost you, hear hear how Paul summarizes it in Romans 2. Paul says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So Paul's saying, look, what happens on the outside is not the most important thing. To be a true person of God, to belong to God, has nothing to do with circumcision. Circumcision is not simply outward, but a Jew is one inwardly. So if you want to be Jewish, 
you want to believe in Jesus, circumcision isn't going to help you because true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the law. So Paul's saying physical, outward, religious observance, that's not going to save you. Paul's point is what they're telling you to do is wrong. It will not bring you to Christ. It will not bring you joy. It will rob you of your joy. Why? Because it places your confidence in the wrong place. The Judaizers put their confidence in the flesh. And the flesh means anything apart from Jesus. It means what my hands have done. It means that I'm trusting myself to save myself. And Paul says that's confidence in the flesh. And when your trust is in the flesh, it's not in Jesus. And if your confidence is in the flesh, you're not relying on the grace of God, but you're relying on your own two hands, which is the exact opposite of the gospel. You cannot save yourself. The gospel emphasizes what God has done. The law, particularly circumcision, emphasizes what I can do. And Paul says you can't trust in what you can do. You have to trust in what God has done. This misplaced confidence has a name. It's self-righteousness. And self-righteousness robs you of joy. You cannot rejoice in the Lord if you are rejoicing in yourself at the same time. Because you're a fickle source of joy. I mean, how, how good do you have to be to be happy with yourself? Just think about your track record this week. If you, if you are the litmus test, if your goodness is what approves you before God, if it's your confidence, what you're standing on, what you're relying on, just give me your track record this week, Sunday to Sunday. How you doing? Is that a rock-solid confidence? When you think about your record before the Lord this week, I mean, put it all in there together. What you've said, what you've done, what you've thought, what you've felt. If you're like me, that means your confidence goes like this. It means you're bordering on bipolar. You're a wreck. You vacillate between feeling pretty good about yourself and feeling like a total wreck. Right? The difference... So that's what it looks like to place your confidence in the flesh. But when Paul says to rejoice in the Lord and put your confidence in Jesus, that doesn't go anywhere. It's rock solid. He didn't fail. As Zach read for us from Hebrews, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so we can be confident to enter the holy place. We can be confident to come before the throne of grace and find mercy because Jesus is the one who opens the door, not me. Right? If you were, if you were going in to see a king, or if you were trying to get in the White House to go see the president, I've used this illustration before, I encourage you, just walk up to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, throw open the front gate, and start walking for the front door. 
See what happens. See if you can make it to the front door. You may want to sprint. Right? Why? You're going to need somebody else to get you in that door. I know most of you in here pretty well, and I know that you don't have the clearance to get in the White House to talk to Donald Trump. All right? Like, you don't have that, you don't have that access. I don't have that access. You need someone else to get you in the door because you're not good enough. Paul says that when you rest your confidence in your works, if you're going to trust in circumcision, good luck getting before God. You're not good enough. You need someone else to open that door for you. You need someone else's clearance. And that's what you have in Jesus So we need to fight self-righteousness. But how do we do that? How do we counter those voices? How do we counter the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilation who keep pointing us back to the law, to the works of our hands? Look at what Paul says. He, in essence, tells us to fly to Jesus. He says, we are the circumcision. What does that mean? In essence, it means we are the true people of God. Jews and Gentiles saved by grace through faith. If you're in Jesus, then you are the circumcision. Not the people who boast about their circumcision. They're the mutilation. They're the dogs. They're outside. We're on the inside. We're on the inside because... Of Jesus. Again, from Romans 2, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. The true people of God are those who bear the true mark of God's grace, not in their flesh, circumcision, but in their hearts. They have renewed hearts, which is what the Old Testament sign was all about anyway. The Old Testament sign of circumcision was given to point inward to the reality that what God wants is a circumcised heart that has all the dead flesh cut away so that it can beat for God. Paul says, that's us. If you're in Jesus and you have the Spirit, that's us. How does he describe these people, these real people of God? First, he says, they worship by the Spirit of God. Jesus told the Jewish leader, Nicodemus, that he would have to be born again by the Spirit in order to get into heaven. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that worship, that, that, it, that a day was coming when worship would be by the Spirit, not by the law. Jesus says, Paul says, that those who are the real people of God are fueled not by outward obedience, but by the Holy Spirit. They worship, they serve by the Spirit. They have a renewed heart that comes from God. They are those who glory in Christ Jesus. They boast in what Jesus has done for them. 
He's their talk. He's their satisfaction. He's, their, he's what they exult in. That's what we heard from Jeremiah 9. Let him who boasts, boast in this. Not in his wealth, not in his might, not in his beauty, but that he knows and trusts me. That's what it means to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 6, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Circumcision doesn't matter. The cross matters. The new creation that comes out of the cross matters. That's where our identity is found. Which is why Paul can go on to say, these are the people who put no confidence in the flesh. There's nothing to trust in, in my flesh. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross. Except the cross that pays for me. Except the cross that offers me new life. Except the death that opens the way into life. Far be it from me to boast in anything but the cross of Christ. As one hymn writer put it, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's what it means to glory in Christ, to fly to Jesus. And when we fly to Jesus, we begin to know what it means to experience real joy. Now, there are some other questions that are wrapped up in this joy thing. Primarily, Kevin, my life doesn't look very joyful. What about joy and my back pain? What about joy and my anxiety? What about joy and my depression? What about joy and my continually negative circumstances? How do those things go together? We're going to talk about that in Philippians 4, so you just have to wait a little bit. But, Paul says, and by the way, joy and sorrow can exist side by side. They are not mutually exclusive. For the person who is in Jesus, we can even rejoice in sorrow. I don't know, I don't fully grasp that. Those of you who have walked with the Lord a much longer time than me, you can probably grasp that. But it's possible. And we're going to talk about it. But know this, that true joy is found here primarily when we reject self-righteousness. Because self-righteousness cannot ever make us happy. True joy is found when we reject self-righteousness and glory in Christ alone. God says, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out broken cisterns for themselves that hold no water. Is that an apt description of your life? Digging around in the dirt, covered in dust, hoping by chance to 
catch a little bit of rainwater the next time, and yet finding yourself perpetually dissatisfied, come to Jesus. Come to the fountain of living waters. Come to Him and rejoice and be free. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you teach us what it means to fight for joy? Which in one sense is really no more than coming to you again and again and again. Being reminded of who you are and what you have done. Putting ourselves in the paths of your gospel grace. Not trusting the works of our own hands. Trusting the work that you have done. Flying to the fountain again. Laying our deadly doing down. Oh Lord, I pray that you would enable us to see the enemies of the gospel. Those who call us to trust in everything else but Jesus. Those who call us to trust in the flesh instead of Jesus. Those who call us to trust in the flesh in addition to Jesus. That is no gospel. That is no good news. The truth is somewhere else. Teach us what it means to live in the light of that truth. Truly rejoice to find our joy in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.